hearts are mortgaged And our minds are media slaves The world is warming up as we are Mother Nature's wage Just inside She is taking Welcome to this special program on the convergence, our moment of choice, evolutionary visions, and hope for the future. This is your convergence host, Dr. Kurt Johnson of Unity Earth and the Interspiritual Dialogue Network. This will be the first of two Voice America specials that the Convergence will host for the period running from late August through October, which is often called the summer-fall event season of the United Nations community, both here in New York City and also around the world. But this 2020 summer-fall event season is a special one because we'll be framing it in the context of an important new book, which will be appearing on September 1st. This new book is Our Moment of Choice, Evolutionary Visions, and Hope for the Future, and it's from Beyond Words, Simon & Schuster, and features the global visioning at such a critical time of over 40 major world thought leaders. The book's thematics across seven circles of discussion about transformation and change form a perfect context for pointing to all the varied events that are planned for this event season. And all of them will be online, and nearly all of them will be free. They range from the International Day of Peace, Peace Weekend, and the 11 Days of Unity celebrations that lead up to the International Day of Peace, and a host of other programs by leading international NGOs, organizations, and networks addressing justice, peace, equality, environmental health, sustainability, and so many other pivotal world issues. These events and programs run on through September and into October, culminating with the United Nations Week of Spirituality and also the Global Oneness Day on October 24th. These two Voice America specials will be paralleled by a special issue of Light on Light magazine, which can be found free at www.lightonlight.us. That's www.lightonlight.us. This special magazine issue, also entitled Our Moment of Choice, will illustrate both the thematics of the book and the events and initiatives of this 2020 season. So in the first of these two Voice American Convergence specials, we're going to concentrate on the book, Our Moment of Choice, and its message. With the privilege of hearing from a number of the contributors to the book, whose chapters were written by such well-known world leaders and changemakers as Deepak Chopra, Gene Houston, Greg Braden, Jude Curavan, John Perkins, Eben Alexander, Dwayne Elgin, Lynn McTaggart, Barbara Marks Hubbard, Irvin Laszlo, and so many more. The book is a product of the evolutionary leader circles, who you'll find out much more about at www.evolutionaryleaders.net. That's evolutionaryleaders.net. 
including all the guests that we have for us on the program today. The Evolutionary Leaders Circle is a project of the Source of Synergy Foundation, and you can find out much more also about the book at its website, ourmomentofchoice.com. The official book launch is September 1st. So I'm joined here now by the founder and executive director of the Source of Synergy Foundation, Diane Marie Williams, the international director of the Evolutionary Leaders, Reverend Deborah Moldau, and also by Dr. Robert Adkinson, who, along with me and Reverend Deborah, are co-editors of the book. And we're also joined by Rick Ulfick, who's also a member of the Evolutionary Leaders and the founder of We the World and We.net, who have created the 11 Days of Unity event, which promote events that run from the 11 days preceding the International Day of Peace, the anniversary of September 11th to September 21st. There are full bios for each of them at the Voice America show page and in the Light on Light magazine. Rick's going to be helping us point from the book to the events, and Rick will also be joining me as co-host for the second Voice America special scheduled for uh, posting in early September, which will be about all of the events of the 2020 summer-fall event season. And there we'll be joined by so many leaders and personalities from those celebrations. So let's start with talking with Diane and Deborah, who co-wrote the preface to our moment of choice, and about whom you can also learn much more from their bios at the Voice America show page. So Diane, tell us about the Source of Synergy Foundation and its project, the Evolutionary Leader Circle. Tell us what the mission of the Source of Synergy Foundation is and why it was inspired to support the book, uh, the birth of this book. And also, you co-wrote the preface of the book with Deborah, so we'd also love to hear any introductory passages from it that you might also like to share with us. Thank you so much, Kurt. It's a pleasure to be part of this Voice of America special program of the Convergence. I want to begin by acknowledging that our world is in a very poignant time in history. With so much loss, sorrow, and uncertainty, there's a share of vulnerability that is connecting our global population and inadvertently helping us to more deeply recognize our interconnectedness. I saw a story on the local news um, recently of a family that was struggling with the decision of whether or not to send their children to school. Their son, a boy of about 12 years old, decided he wanted to go to be with his friends to feel less isolated. And when they asked his little sister, who was about seven years old, if she would be returning, she said no. And when the reporter asked why, she began to cry. She struggled to get the words out, but managed to say that she didn't want to die. And one could tell she was very worried about her brother, who she just witnessed going off to school on the school bus. To see a little child being confronted with having to make such a choice is heartbreaking. And today's times are calling for us to boldly re-examine how our past and our present choices have created the conditions we have today. Are we courageous enough to question why pandemics happen, to look at how 75% of viruses in the world are rooted in how humanity has treated animals and their habitats, and that this little girl's suffering is connected to this lack of respect for nature and other life forms? 
our moment of choice is requiring us to have these honest conversations with others and each other to look at what sometimes feels too uncomfortable to see and to take, take bold steps in changing the ways we conduct our lives. It's calling for us to step into our most visionary selves by fully utilizing our loving, compassionate, innate qualities and higher capacities as conscious, evolving expressions of the source of all that is. The Source of Synergy Foundation recognizes that our essential nature is source, a single universal field out of which everything emerges, where we are united as one. And a big part of our mission is to support the release of synergistic energy that spirals out and creates, expands, and deepens connectivity and synergistic engagement. We all know when individuals, organizations, communities, and nations unite in a shared sense of responsibility for the common good, their collective efforts have a far greater effect on the whole. Our evolutionary leaders circle, which was the Source of Synergy Foundation's very first project, was birthed almost 14 years ago, emerged from such synergistic momentum, and Deborah will share more about this special group in a moment. She and I started the preface of the book, Our Moment of Choice, by saying, this book is about hope, it's about action, it's about innovation, it's about a synergistic convergence of the worldwide network of interconnected humanity, ushering in the next level of human consciousness. The 43 contributors of this book and everyone else in the world committed to evolution and making a collective call for humanity to rise to new heights of synergistic convergence, creativity, and conscious living so that true change will be ushered in is happening around the planet. And so future generations, including the little girl afraid to go to school, will live in a world that feels safe and life-affirming. Each of you listening to this program today and countless others are part of a worldwide movement grounded in synergy, sweeping the planet of many people and many actions, visions, new ways of living, thinking, and doing, including simple everyday choices and acts that strengthen the whole, all synergized together with its foundation built on the power of love for the natural world, all living beings, and our beautiful planet Earth. These choices and actions are leading the evolution and giving us all hope for the future. Wow, Diane, thanks so much. It's obvious why you and your cohorts have succeeded at so much over the last decade. So, Deborah, then tell us about the evolutionary leaders, about their history and what they do, and then how about this group generated this book, which presents such an expansive view of hope for world change and transformation. Thank you so much, Kurt. And it's a great pleasure to be with you today on Voice America. So the Source of Synergy Foundation began convening visionary leaders with the support of Deepak Chopra back in 2006. The group that became known as the Evolutionary Leaders first met in California two years later, co-convened by the Source of Synergy Foundation, Deepak Chopra, and the Association for Global New Thought. And together, the group co-wrote A Call to Conscious Evolution, which is posted online at our website at evolutionaryleaders.net, and which has received so far close to 50,000 signatures, and it's still collecting them. So it's very inspiring. Anyone who wants to sign on can leave your message of hope there at evolutionaryleaders.net. So the 35 or so leaders who met back then wanted to continue meeting. 
So the Source of Synergy Foundation has been hosting annual retreats since that time, as well as bringing the community together through our monthly newsletter, The Edge, our Facebook page, and various synergy circles in which evolutionary leaders come together with others to address the areas that they care most about, such as conscious business, new directions in education, protecting natural sacred sites, and science and spirituality, and more. This is a very dynamic community, and it's made up of extraordinary people who have all accomplished so much in their lives leading this evolution of consciousness, which is so critical to our survival here on planet Earth at this pivotal moment in time. The evolutionary leaders have so far reached out to others on the edge of the current evolution, mostly through the newsletter and through the call to conscious evolution. But now we have this unique, timely, really exciting new book, Our Moment of Choice, Evolutionary Vision and Hopes for the Future. In this slim volume, 43 evolutionary leaders, including many well-known authors, Somebody said, this list looks like my bookshelf. (laughs) All of these evolutionary leaders are bringing together a glimpse into their different views on the key areas of our situation around the globe and how we can move forward to co-create healthy ways of living on this planet into the future. Everybody who reads this book is invited into this critical conversation on what we can do together to redirect our societies toward a positive future and not so much in fear of our possible extinction, but with the joy of knowing that something new and exciting is just around the corner if we all pool our gifts and our actions and our resources for the common good. This is our turning point, our great moment of choice. Now, Deborah, thanks so much, and we're also grateful that you decided to take on the challenge of being the director of these 200 amazing people that make up the evolutionary leaders. So now Bob Atkinson, who I'd like to mention to the audience, is a Nautilus Award winner for his book, The Story of Our Time. I'd like to ask you more about the genesis of this book, Our Moment of Choice, and its content and goals. I understand that the guests that we brought together today from among the contributors to the book represent all seven circles of discussion about world transformation and change. So tell us how uh, we plan to frame the vision of uh, the book with guests from each of these seven circles. And Bob, also because you and I wrote the epilogue to the book, which closes out the book, very much in context with all of the recent upheavals and winds of change that we've all seen blowing across the world in the last few months in this unique 2020. Tell us more about the structure of the book and who's in it and and what brought it all about. Sure. Thank you, Kurt. It's uh, great to be with you on this program. This, uh, This is a remarkably timely and relevant book, and it does address what is currently unfolding in the world. And we have 43 evolutionary leaders who have come together for the first time in a book to engage us all around the solutions to the challenges facing humanity by providing the visions to carry them into action. This book provides the tools and resources needed to bring the transformation of consciousness already underway to its successful completion 
and build the future we envision. How this book came about is a very interesting story of synergy and convergence and action. The idea for this, for a book like this, with many of the same contributors, came to me in 2012. I shared my idea with Barbara Marks Hubbard, and she liked it. But with a couple other book projects going on at the same time, it wasn't until I became a member of the Evolutionary Leaders Circle in 2018 that I proposed to Diane and Deborah that we do this book. That was when I found out that this had already been a project of the Evolutionary Leaders too about 10 years ago, but wasn't completed then. Diane and Deborah quickly agreed that we should look into it, and as things were different then, uh, Deborah and Kurt graciously agreed to be co-editors with me. So a concept, some guiding questions, and a proposal was drawn up, and an invitation was sent out to all the evolutionary leaders. We quickly got back many generous responses from those who wanted to contribute a chapter. The title we settled on, Our Moment of Choice, was from Greg Braden and the earlier Evolutionary Book Project. This still is, and even more so, a very critical moment of choice for humanity as a whole. And because we are currently facing a series of interconnected challenges, while also experiencing an unprecedented global shift in consciousness, we wanted to offer up creative visions to live into. And for the subtitle, we wanted to capture the essence of what the evolutionary leaders are all about and also express the confidence we have in humanity to call upon its inherent potential to make this course change that is absolutely necessary now to co-create a just, sustainable future. So the subtitle became Evolutionary Visions and Hope for the Future. In fact, the very nature of the evolution of consciousness gives us an abiding hope in the future. The timing for this book couldn't be any better than it is right now. And what really struck me from the vantage point I had working on this book is the breadth and depth of all the 43 contributors, most of whom are very well recognized in this field. But each one of them is offering a unique and vital piece to the big picture of the transformation of consciousness that is taking place in the world right now. This much-needed book addresses a range of topics organized into seven thematic circles, from how we're living into a new story, to how we're building bridges to a global community and a culture of peace, to how science and spirituality are coming together in a new vision of evolution, to how the entire universe is alive and conscious, and why we are planetary stewards, and to why we are all ethical stewards of the Earth's economic integrity, to how we can work with the mind-body-spirit connection to heal ourselves and the planet, to how research and education are being used to awaken, elevate, and evolve consciousness, to new frontiers are being, to how new frontiers are being pushed to view the cosmos as a fully integrated whole, to how we can better envision the big picture to support global transformation. These are all threads of a larger whole, and one, and each one is deeply interconnected with the other. So as Kurt indicated, this book is organized into seven thematic circles, which are bridge building, restoring ecological balance, social change, 
healing self and planet, integrating science and spirituality, new frontiers, and the big picture. All right, Bob, so thanks have, so much, and particularly thanks for the year and a half that you put in with us making this book possible. So we're going to begin these seven circle discussions in just a moment, but first we want to get some comments from Rick Ulfick, who will be joining me as the co-host for the second Voice America special about our moment of choice, evolutionary visions, and hope for the future. That program will center on the many amazing and important events of this fall event season across the world community. So, Rick, tell us a little about the array of the events for this year that are all surrounding the 2020 International Day of Peace season and what we'll be including in the second Voice America special that will be centering on them and from which we'll be including many important guests from each of those events and initiatives in our second special in September. Well, thank you, Kurt. Yes, September is a unique convergence of programs and events, some of which could be life-changing experiences for people. This will be the 16th anniversary of 11 Days of Global Unity, which you mentioned earlier, and uh, that my organization, We the World, launched in collaboration with Desmond Tutu, Jane Goodall, Deepak Chopra, Amnesty International, and many others. 11 Days of Global Unity goes from September 11th through September 21st, the International Day of Peace. And this year, it is integrated with uh, Unity Earth's eight-day up convergence and the three-day peace weekend. That about sums it all up, Kurt, and it's an extraordinary coming together, isn't it? Which is what we is all about. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I want to thank, you know, Deborah, Diane, and Rick, and just mention to the audience that if you can't stay with us till the end, where we're going to be able to tell many of you where to find all this stuff, you can track all of these events, most of which will be online, just by always taking a look at www.unity.earth. That's www.unity.earth. And nearly all of these uh, uh, programs and their schedules will always be available there. So now uh, we want to begin our discussions with the contributors to seven thematic circles of our moment of choice. And the way that we're going to do that is that I and Bob, Deborah, and Diane will each be talking with authors from two of the chapters in each circle. These will all be in separate segments, and this will allow us to let you know what that circle is about, introduce the guest authors, and then close out with whatever notes are pertinent about what's next. So we're going to start with chatting with Greg Braden, an author who is so renowned across more than 20 books, frequently on the New York Times bestseller list, the most recent being The Wisdom Code. Now, Greg has been a part of our book team, actually suggested the book title, and Greg also wrote the introduction to the book. So we're going to go over now to Greg Braden and talk about his introduction to our moment of choice. Uh, well, Kurt, thank you very much for, uh, for having me on today. You know, this, uh, this book, it was exciting. It was actually very healing for me to, uh, to be a part of this book, uh, the introduction 
to open the, the doors to the possibilities that are shared in this book. The, the title says it all, our moment of choice. We're living a time of extremes and the best science of the modern world is telling us that. It's simply that that science is not being shared in the mainstream. So we're not seeing it in mainstream classrooms, textbooks, mainstream documentaries. So I, I want to first clarify what I mean by a time of extremes. We're, we're living a rare convergence of natural rhythms and cycles of climate, economy, and conflict that are in fact converging in a way that we have not seen in 5,000 years of recorded human history. So when we say the extremes are occurring, it doesn't mean only bad things or even good things, but big things. That kind of convergence can only mean big changes in the world, and that means big changes in our lives. And for me, this is the opportunity because Kurt, the best science of the modern world is also telling us that we have everything we need to thrive in this time of extremes. Not just survive, but to thrive, to transcend the, the, the challenges and the crises that uh, have appeared at our doorstep. But it all boils down to the way that we think about ourselves and our relationship to the world. It's all about our story. Our story is front and center right now. We talk about the human story. Our story, uh, we solve our problems based upon the way that we think about ourselves. We live our everyday lives based upon the way we think of ourselves. We choose our relationships. We heal our bodies. We build the policies that govern our society based upon our story. And up until recently, the, the human story has been based upon false assumptions of an obsolete science, the false assumptions of separation, competition, conflict, struggle, scarcity being the fundamental rules of nature. Now we know the best science of the modern world acknowledges that all of those things certainly are possible and we've experienced them. We're not denying that. But the science is telling us that the fundamental rules of nature now are based on cooperation and what is called mutual aid, not the competition and the conflict. And the more of that competition and conflict we see, the further we have strayed from this fundamental law of nature. So as we begin to embrace the discoveries of the new science and the way that we solve our problems, the time of extremes that we find ourselves in right now, what we see is that by embracing this new way of thinking, this new human story, we open the door to a, a whole realm, a vast array of possibilities that far exceed what we've been led to believe in the past and give us real reasons for hope, not just the wishful thinking, but these are rock-solid science discoveries that give us rock-solid reasons for hope in our world. Kurt, the truth is we have all of the solutions for all of the big problems in the world right now. We already have all the technological solutions and we've had them for decades, the technological solutions. What we are now experiencing is that our thinking has to catch up with those solutions. The way that we think of ourselves in the world, we have to make room in our lives for the, the solutions that already exist. The conditions of the world, our time of extremes, are pushing us to the place where we must think differently and live differently. Uh, in order to, to thrive in, in this time of extremes. So this book gives us the opportunity to hear from many experts in many fields, their respective discoveries and the way that they apply those discoveries in their own lives and with the people's lives that they influence. 
the, the beauty of this book, Kurt, is that it's not limited only to scientists or only to public speakers, only to spiritual leaders or only to business leaders or philosophers, but it crosses the boundaries of all of those areas of expertise and brings together 43 of the leading thinkers of the world. And I, I did some quick math. In this book, in the pages of this book, there are over 500 years, Kurt, of collective experience, collective wisdom from some of these individuals that have devoted the bulk of their adult lives to developing and understanding the new human story. The science that gives us the reason to think differently about ourselves, beyond the science, how we can apply those reasons in our lives. So we are all, all being faced with something that has happened probably faster than we have been led to believe it could happen. Uh, we are probably not prepared to the degree that we would like to be for the kinds of changes that we're seeing in our world. We need new ways to think and new ways to live our lives to replace the unsustainable ways of thinking and living from the past. This book is a portal, it's a doorway, it's more than just a read because each contribution uh, is, is condensing a lifetime of discovery and exploration into a few powerful words. And if we open our hearts and open our minds and allow those words to penetrate into the belief systems that we've been invited to embrace, we are changed in the presence of this book, Kurt. And that is the key. We are changed in the presence of the book because we are now introduced to new ways of thinking. And once we read them, we cannot unread them. That's where the moment of choice begins. We must choose. Do we embrace the possibilities, uh, the hope and the possibility that the book shows us, or do we discount what we have been, what we've, what we've just read? Uh, and I'm going to admit, it takes work to change the way we think. And I often refer back to an amazing book written early in the 20th century. The, the, uh, the book was called The Prophet. The author was Khalil Gibran. Khalil Gibran says to us that work is love made visible. The work that it takes to change the way we think and the way we live is our love made visible in the world, and the world that we leave shows our love for ourselves and our relationship to the world. That's why I'm so excited about this book, Kurt, and I want to thank you for the opportunity uh, uh, to talk about this a little bit today. Well, Greg Braden, thank you so much. And as we said in introducing you, you not only were part of the team and wrote the introduction, but you also gave us the title for the book. So now we're going to be able to begin with the sharings from the contributors to the seven thematic circles of our moment of choice. In just a moment after this announcement from Beyond Words, Atria Books, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. Hello, this is Richard Cohn, publisher of Beyond Words. We are very honored to be partnering with Simon & Schuster and the Synergy Foundation to bring you a new thought-provoking book for these challenging times. It is called Our Moment of Choice, and it features 43 of the world's most well-known spiritual thinkers, offering practical solutions to the most pressing problems of our time from economic inequality and social injustice to climate change and spiritual disconnection. Deepak Chopra offers his thoughts on how our inherent wholeness is not a choice, 
while Greg Braden suggests that we can change our world by first realizing that none of us are separate from each other. Lynn McTaggart investigates the link between altruism and self-healing. Michael Bernard Beckwith, Bruce Lipton, and many others share their thoughts on moving forward in ways that expand our consciousness and benefit the global community. Our moment of choice calls on us all to be the co-creators of a just, unified, peaceful, and thriving world. The time has come for all humanity to be united in purpose. This is our call to action. This is our collective moment of choice upon which our future depends. You can purchase your copy today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Beyond Words, or your local independent bookstore. This is your Voice America host, Dr. Kurt Johnson, and we're here discussing chapters from the book, Our Moment of Choice, Evolutionary Visions and Hope for the Future. And I'm here with the Reverend Deborah Moldau, one of the book's editors, and she'll introduce the circle, her guests, and what chapters that they're going to be sharing about. Complete bios for all of them are at the Voice America show page. So, over to Deborah. Thanks, Kurt. I'm so pleased to introduce to you two evolutionary leaders from a very different perspective who both have chapters in Circle One of our Moment of Choice, which is about bridge building. And I also want to mention that my chapter on spirituality in the 21st century, A Quiet Revolution, is also part of Circle One. So we're all, we're all about bridge building today. Dr. David Sloan Wilson is a distinguished professor of biology and anthropology at Binghamton University and president of the Evolution Institute. He's written such influential books as Does Altruism Exist? and Darwin's Cathedral. Shilpa Jane serves as executive director of YES, which empowers social change makers to co-create a thriving, just, and balanced world for all. Shilpa has facilitated transformative gatherings with hundreds of leaders from over 50 countries. So let's start with Dr. David Sloan Wilson. Uh, David, you have written with Kurt Johnson about integrating an evolutionary vision of the future with hard science. So can you tell us a little bit about how hard evolutionary science affirms and contributes to the vision of evolutionary leadership? Sure. And uh, also, uh, my uh, article with uh, Kurt uh, details my conversation with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, which I had an extraordinary opportunity to have uh, late last year, which is part of our, part of our uh, story. And when you look at the evolutionary leaders uh, and this whole book, what you find is a spiritual vision that, uh, based, of course, on, on evolution, uh, conscious evolution towards a whole Earth, uh, an ecological view, which is like Gaia, uh, the Earth is a single organism. And so this powerful spiritual vision is actually at odds with, with uh, the so-called hard science of evolution and ecology, or at least so it is seemed 
for most of the 20th uh, century until very recently. So in some ways, the hard science of evolution and, and ecology is catching up to the spiritual vision. Uh, only now can we say from a, from a hard scientific perspective that evolution can be conscious, uh, that cultural evolution is an evolutionary process like genetic evolution, and that we can work towards a polar ethics, basically. So in some ways, hard science is playing catch-up, but now that it has caught up, it has so much to offer this spiritual vision. And so the, uh, the bridging, to use that important word, between the hard science and the spiritual vision is what I feel my main role uh, is. And so that's what I tried to convey to His Holiness in my conversation. And another big piece of it, which will be the final piece of my short um, talk uh, here, is that in addition to an inner transformation, which is what mindfulness-based practices are uh, often all about, so that we can transform our inner lives to be more compassionate. Uh, to a degree, that reflects what we do, how we act, because you can't really um, think compassionately without acting compassionately. But much more is needed, actually, to, to uh, assist action beyond just what we're inclined to do from a compassionate state of mind. So there's a, a whole dimension of transforming our outer lives, which has to do with the creation of institutions and organizations, in addition to transforming our inner lives. So inner and outer, um, this is part of what we need to do and what I represent with my work with pro-social, working with groups in real-world settings, and working on their spiritual dimension in addition to their to their um, social organizational dimension. So I'm passionate about this, and I feel a privilege to to uh, be a part of your project uh, in this important book. Well, we're definitely thrilled to have you in this book, and uh, I'm really delighted to hear uh, the way your views interweave with what Shilpa Jane has written about in her chapter, which is on jamming, cultural, uh, cultivating connection, community, collaboration, and co-liberation. So it sounds to me like Shilpa is actually on the ground teaching people what you are talking about. So Shilpa, can you tell us a little bit about what jamming is and how you see it as the kind of bridge building that's vital for these times? Of course. Thank you, Deborah, and good to meet you, David. Um, so jamming really comes out of the spirit of a musician's jam, that every person who comes is actually a co-creator of the experience. And by bringing and sharing their unique voice, their gifts, their talents, as well as their struggles, their challenges, their fears, their pain, their visions, their, their hopes, all of that gets jammed together through a very powerful process around listening, speaking one's truth, uh, making space for each other, and really dropping into the whole body wisdom, the heart wisdom and soul wisdom that each person carries. And in that process of listening, of co-creation, of presence and, uh, and, and exchange, what is synergized is something that never previously existed. 
because it's greater than the sum of our parts. And like a musician's jam, the music that emerges is often higher order solutions and previously unimagined outcomes that make possible the kind of worlds that we each hope to see. And so in many ways, jamming is kind of a very practical experience of the world we want to see and and beloved community building um, together. And what's very powerful about that, I think, is how we approach conflict. And I think that is where the transformation really lies. So there's the inner work, for sure, the internal work of recognizing who I am, how I am in this world, what's really alive for me, and how am I showing up. There's the outer work of what am I doing to make change through various structures or institutions and education or law or arts or social justice, all of these different ways. And then there's the interpersonal work. And I've really been thinking these days about there's leadership that builds walls and there's leadership that builds bridges. And the bridge building leadership is one that's willing to face conflict and face difference. And particularly in our world, we're full of differences around our social identities, race, class gender, sexuality, nationality, religion, age, all of these points of conflict that if we are not taking time and space to really look at and addressing, they lead to tremendous breakdowns. And we've seen that all over the world. So so what is possible when we shift our leadership perspective to actually face those conflicts, to meet them in the interpersonal realm and really break through allow for those conflicts to lead to bridge building, to, to making authentic connections through a process of slowing down, through a process of checking our reactions, to trying to be in our stretch zone together, the space where we can really listen and learn, speak our truth, be heard, and hold for the multiplicity of truths and the multiplicity of possibilities that emerge from those truths coming together. And so, yeah, that's what jamming is. And for, for the possibility of creating more of the world we want to see to have really lived practical experiences in our bodies, in our, in our breath, in our um, actual lives that can shape what we do going forward. Um, yeah. That's beautiful, Shilpa. Uh, just teaching people how to be bridge builders and even to want to be bridge builders rather than to want to win or dominate other people uh, is so critical. And uh, David Sloan Wilson you talk about uh, human cultural evolution, uh, which is, you know, sounds like what Shilpa is seeding here in individual people. You say that it needs to become more intentional and directed towards global good than ever before. Do you see this happening? Well, it's something we have to work for. It's not something that will happen uh, spontaneously. It won't self-organize. It's something that has to be uh, work towards, and that is happening. And I think that uh, all of our efforts, I think, are having an impact, and it's important to catalyze it. Uh, in the very short space we have, I think, uh, I mean, change does not occur as fast as it needs to. Uh, we need to speed up the rate of positive change, and that, too, is possible. And so a combination of, of scientific know-how plus the kind of jamming that... Um, uh, that we've heard about, I think um, uh, that's a great combination also. Another form of of, um, of bridging is on the one hand, we have the whole intellectual uh, side of things, you know, the head part, and then we have the heart and the soul part. We have the experiential part. We have more of an institutional, social, organizational 
uh, part. We have to build our identities, be very explicit about that. And so uh, it's, uh, uh, there's many pieces that need, to be, that need to be put together, but I think we have a game plan for, for doing it. So at the end of the day, I end up being uh, very optimistic. Yes, of course, it's daunting. But on the other hand, uh, I have a strong sense of what to do, and I think that, uh, and that's what makes one hopeful. Well, that's that's really good to hear in these uh, stressful times, David. And uh, Shilpa, uh, you talk about you talk about uh, how people learn to make change through the existing institutions and evolve them. Do you see that as the way to for real change to be possible in this moment? Yeah, I think real change is possible when we're working at all three levels of transformation. So working internally, working interpersonally, and working systemically. And so the more we can bring those three fields of transformation together and really be at the heart of them, I think the more change is possible. And I think a lot about shifting institutions, shifting systems is like creating culture. And cultures are made up of mindsets, skill sets, and structures. It's not enough to just change one. We have to work on all three. And there are so many beautiful learnings and experiments and practical things all the way from indigenous wisdom, all the way through through modern experiments that people have been doing on how to shift our structures so that they reflect the kind of mindsets that we want to say and how to build up our skill sets, especially towards listening, especially towards working with conflict, especially towards self-awareness. Um, especially towards creativity and imagination that really allow for those systemic shifts to happen. And so I think the more that we're working and seeding and weaving these things together, the more possibility there are for these systems to shift. And I'm seeing it happen. We're seeing it happen in the criminal justice system with more shifting to defund the police and, and restorative justice models. We're seeing it happen in agriculture with greater shifts towards regenerative farming and organic farming. We're seeing it happening in the education system with new models of experimentation happening on whole community learning and different kinds of... So there's these, these, all of these motivations and movements that are happening. And the more they weave together and connect and the more we inspire and co-inspire each other, I think there's greater possibility for, for these shifts to really take root. Well, thank you so much, Dr. David Sloan-Wilson and Shilpa Jane, for sharing these most encouraging and empowering evolutionary visions and hope for the future. And now back to Kurt Johnson. Uh, Deborah, Shilpa, and David, thank you so much for having such a really inspiring discussion about this important first circle in the book, Bridge Building. And it follows on just a great conversation we just had with Greg Braden about his introduction to the book. Our moment of choice, evolutionary visions and hope for the future. I'm here with Reverend Deborah Moldau, one of the book editors, and she'll introduce the circle and her guests and what chapters they're going to be sharing about. So over to Deborah. Thank you, Kurt. We have with us two brilliant contributors to Circle Two in our moment of choice, which is called Restoring Ecological Balance. John Perkins and Daniel Christenval. John Perkins is the author of the very well-known Confessions of an Economic Hitman and other books, including his most recent, Touching the Jaguar. He's an authority on shamanism, as well as a former advisor to the World Bank, which is quite a fascinating combination. 
Daniel Christian Wall has a PhD in design for sustainability. And he works internationally in, at the intersection between education, transformative innovation, activism, and culture change. He is the author of Designing Regenerative Cultures. So let's begin with John Perkins, whose chapter in our moment of choice is called, very aptly, Reasons for Optimism, Transitioning to a Life Economy. So John, we all, we're all looking for reasons for optimism right now. So in this unique moment in history, how does an economist see the choices facing us as a nation, as a world? <laughs> well, I don't know how an economist sees it, but, but I think I see it almost from that perspective, but also from the kind of the shamanic perspective and, and, and perhaps just the only rational perspective we can have in the world today. And that is that we know we need to change. So I wrote my most recent book, Touching the Jaguar, before there was a pandemic. Uh, I had no idea that there was a pandemic, but I did know that there were all these once in 100 year events like hurricanes and, and earthquakes and fires that were happening every year or so. The earth is speaking to us. And you can look at that scientifically, you know, the, the, um, the satellite photographs that are coming back from China and other places showing how when you cut back on economic growth, suddenly the, the, the environment changes, improves. Uh, or you can look at it from a shamanic perspective that the earth is actually speaking to us in, in, that, in that way. However you look at it, we must change. We've created what, what many economists, including me, refer to as a death economy, an economic system that's consuming itself into extinction. It's based on maximizing short-term profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs. It's destroying itself, and it's destroying us along with it. And the pandemic is just the latest message that we've gotten that this system isn't working. We don't want to return to normal, that being the normal of a death economy. We want to create a new a life economy that's, that pays people and, and gives returns to investors who invest in things that clean up pollution, that regenerate destroyed environments, that recycle, and that, that create new technologies that are regenerative, rejuvenating, that, that are not destructive and that don't ravage the earth. So here we are at this moment of changing consciousness realizing that we must change and give, give, really giving, being given an incredible push in the direction that we must change, we will change, and we've seen that we can change because we've all had to make huge changes during the last several months. So this is a pivotal moment, and I think it's one that's been, let's say, <laughs> divinely order, ordered, however you want to think of the divine. It's come to us at, at a time when it's most needed. It's definitely our moment of choice. And I, I, I love that concept of moving from a death economy into a life economy. And I think that's very closely related to uh, the life work of, of Daniel Christian Vol, who wrote about regenerating the earth and her people. So, Daniel, can you tell us what you mean by regenerating the earth? It sounds like a tall order. Well, I think if we start at that end um, of the whole earth, it, it does sound like a tall order. But if we actually realize that each and every one of us are expressions of that earth and what we actually need to restore is that balance of relationship, of really understanding that 
the earth doesn't belong to us, we belong to the earth, that, that the land doesn't belong to us, we belong to the land, we're expressions of it. And once we start at healing that misperception of our relationship to the greater whole, then we can engage with our local community and our bioregions in a completely new way and we can begin to um, envision what it would be like to turn as humanity, bioregion by bioregion, into a responsible keystone species, if you want to put it into scientific terms, or into a custodian, if you, if you want to put it into, into other terms. That really, that we, we have the potential. Life over 3.8 billion years has shown us that the pattern of life creates conditions conducive to life. As life, we are capable of falling into that pattern. And we have shown so, particularly our ancestral um, human ancestors have shown so in, in, in many places that they, that they have actually enriched the bioproductivity and the diversity of the ecosystems they, they inhabited. And so we need to relearn that. Um, and that is by healing the earth and her people. I think right now we're seeing that the world over people are starting up ecosystems restoration camps and regeneration projects in many countries. And in doing so, by caring for something larger than themselves, they're actually also building human relationships again. So this is not just an environmental regeneration, it's a regeneration of our relationship in community, to in culture, and um, right relationships to the larger community of life. Because Life is a regenerative community and everyone lives in that tension of living for yourself and living as part of, part of a larger whole. We simply forgot that latter part and now is the time, our moment of choice, where we have to remember that part and become healers again. Oh, what a beautiful vision for the way forward. Uh, John, how do you see what Daniel's just been talking about through the lens of your shamanic training in South America? You're on mute. All right. <laughs> All right. I think that um, the uh, indigenous people uh, have always lived in that kind of a community, uh, with that kind of a focus toward community that, 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 that Daniel mentions, and the, the community being the entire ecosystem. So they've always felt that they are just, that they are not apart from, but are a part of everything else, and that their job is to make sure that they leave as good an environment or better to their grandchildren as the one that they inherited. And I think if you look at it for the 250 or so thousand years that we've been humans on this planet, that's the way we've lived for most of that time. It's only been within the last blink of an eye. And you, know, you might even go back a couple of thousand years and say this started a couple of thousand years ago, but it's really been within the last few decades that we've We've really lost touch with that and, and oriented ourselves toward individual uh, materialistic gain in a very selfish, non-communal way and, not, and, and looking like we, we, we dominate nature rather than that we're part of nature. But I think the human condition, as shown by indigenous people who live traditional lives today, and there aren't very many left, but there are some that, that I spend time with that, that still live that way, but we also see reflected in that the way all human beings have lived for the majority of our 250,000 years here on this planet. So that gives us great hope that we, that we can, you know, that, that, that we're, we're better than we think we are today. Thank you, John. And 
that's so hard for us to imagine, those of us who live in the modern world, so disconnected from our roots in the earth. Daniel, you talk about it being a question uh, uh, not only of how we behave, but a question of being, of who we are. Can you speak a little more to that? Yeah, it's, it's remembering that being happens in that tension between being for oneself and being as part of a larger whole. Healing, finding healthy expressions to um, bring our unique potential that each and every one of us has to bring to this world. Because as life, we are part of life's diversity. And we each and every one of us have, have a gift for this world. Like the Sufis say, there's something written on the back of our hearts. And, and we just need to discover it and bring it into our community. And the way that we can most unfold our potential is by serving the larger community that we're part of, whether that's the community we live in of human people or whether it's the wider community of life. And um, so much of our solutioneering at the moment is focused on quick fix solutions and answers and how do we scale it up. And I, I've just come of a call with uh, Dennis Meadows, the author of the limits to growth report. Uh, uh, and he, he was quite um, clear that what we call modern industrial civilization has no future and is going to not be there in relatively sh short periods of time. And it is that remind, remembering that we have to be in relationships like our the large part of our species or the, in our species history, our ancestors, indigenous people all over the world have lived in right relationships with their place by and large over many millennia. And so this it's a change in being in the sense that we're so busy doing, trying to fix problems. But if we come back to the potential of really being in right relationships, with each other and with the wider community of life, then there's, there's a much deeper shift. And that is a shift that also means appreciating what we've got, seeing rather than seeing all the destruction, seeing the beauty of life again, falling in love with life again in, in, in new ways. And um, Dennis said to me, um, people try to be happy and you can get happy either by um, getting what you want or by wanting what you get. And I thought that was quite interesting. The, the, the latter part is we're, we're not going to be happy by trying to create a sustainable green technology replacing what we've got right now in the industrial growth society and overconsumption. Um, we, we need to really come back to what matters, that relationships and human interactions, um, being in nature, being in relationship to a beautiful place, um, being in relationship to other life forms is actually so much more gratifying and for the large part of our species history ha is what gave us meaning and sustenance. And, and so I, I, I fear that if we think that it's all about doing, we just end up in uh, fixing problems rather than um, fulfilling our true potential. Thank you, Daniel. I hear from what you're saying some some real steps that we can take to give us hope for transitioning into the life economy that sustained our ancestors for millennia that got us here. So, John, do you have any, any final thoughts about this? Well, yes, I think, Deborah, that what Daniel said is, is so brilliant. And also, it, it, it sort of revolves around perception. We know that human reality is, 
completely dependent on human perception. You know, there's no countries, there's no economy, there's no corporations, there's no religion except as we perceive them. And when enough people accept a perception or clarify it into law, it has a huge impact on, re on, on reality. I mean, no reality. And we have this perception today, uh, as Daniel described, that the modern industrial economy or society, that, that that's what we, where we have to go. That's a perception of maximizing short-term profits, maximizing materialistic consumption. Uh, but throughout history, human beings often had different perceptions, as the indigenous people do, that, that uh, you know, our reality is very closely tied with our spirituality. And as an example, I think when people hear some of what we're saying, they say, yeah, but what about the people who live in cities? How do they get close to nature? Well, there's a perception that you can't. But there's another perception that if you get rid of all the cars in New York City, for example, and you convert all the roads and all the parking garages. You can use mirrors to bring light in and grow plants hydroponically and, or however in parking garages. You can create a much closer relationship to nature in cities. And when you come right down to it, you know, all of our buildings are built out of material from the earth. If we just have a feeling about our connection to those things, it doesn't mean that everybody has to go back and live in the forest or the jungle. We can live in, you know, the, 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 these, these types of ways, but we need to change our relationship to them. And I think that's a lot of what Daniel was saying. It's about relationship. It's about feeling our spiritual connection, our, our true conscious connection with everything that we are part of, and that's everything on this planet. Thank you so much. Thank you, John Perkins. Thank you, Daniel Christenval. And thank you to all the contributors to Circle Two in our moment of choice, restoring ecological balance. Truly, if we can't accomplish that, we can't stay on this planet. So it's truly critical in this moment of choice. Thank you so much. Thank you for giving us hope for the future. Back to you, Kurt Johnson. Well, thanks so much, Deborah, John, and Daniel. That was a great discussion from Circle Two of our moment of choice, Evolutionary Visions and Hope for the Future. I'm here with the Reverend Deborah Moldau, who's one of the book's editors, and she'll be introducing the circle, her guests, and what chapters they're going to be sharing about. Complete bios for everyone are at the Voice America show page. So over to Deborah. Thank you, Kurt. So right now we're going to be speaking with three wonderful contributors to Circle 3, which is called Conscious Enterprise and Social Change. Steve Farrell is President and Executive Director at Humanities Team, which focuses on awakening and embodying oneness for a world of peace harmony, and happiness. He's also one of the initiators of the Conscious Business Declaration, offering a new standard for business in the 21st century. David Gershon is co-founder and CEO of the Empowerment Institute. He's written 12 books, including Social Change 2.0, and focuses on designing strategies and tools to empower humanity to create the world of our dreams. His initiatives include the Cool City Challenge and Peace on Earth 2020, 2030. Excuse me, we didn't make it by 2020, but we still have a chance for 2030. So Steve's chapter is called The Dawn of a Conscious Business Movement. Steve, can you tell us what is the difference between conscious business 
an unconscious business? And why is it so important right now? Conscious business is where we're bringing the fullness of consciousness to business. So which means that we're connection, oneness, inner journey, inner journey that creates a being, a, a, an adjusted being state, such as right now that we can even feel into, where we're feeling a connection with nature, with each other, even with the divine, with, with cosmos. Uh, so in conscious business, the whole environment of the, of the business, the culture of the business, uh, works together like this. It's, there's, a, there's a container, so to speak, that the organization works in, and collaboration and decision-making occurred where the group is, uh, is operating this way individually and collectively together. In unconscious business, we're in this place of separation. We're, uh, we're, we, we don't feel a connection with each other. We don't feel a connection with nature. We don't feel a connection with Gaia, the earth. We don't feel a connection with our spiritual selves. Uh, and we're, it's just to accelerate or hit the pedal to the metal and let's go for uh, as much revenue and profit growth as we can get, which is how most business operates today. Mm. That does sound a lot like the way we're living right now. So, uh, David Gershon, your chapter is called Reinventing the Planet, a Bottom-Up Grand Strategy. Uh, David, you want to literally change the world. Where do you begin? Well, that is the first question, right? And the first question that we've asked to kind of respond to that is we need to change, yes, but we don't know how. So we need to start by learning how to change the world better than we're currently doing. We need to learn how to do good better, to say it simply. And how we do good better is that we have to be able to understand that there is something called transformative social change, sometimes called second-order change, which learns how to move a social system, education system, healthcare system, political system, economic system to a higher level of performance and social value. And why this is prime for now is that in order for that to happen, the old system has to crumble. It has to deconstruct so that we can create the new because when that happens, then all the things that have kept it in place are unmoored so it's able to move up to the next level if we know how to create second order change and the book I wrote, Social Change 2.0, and this Reinventing the Planet plan is how to build what we would call second-order change capacity across five levers, which are climate, peace, development, knowledge, and money. Each of those are what we call evolutionary drivers. The next level down could unpack how they are drivers and, and the process of of how the evolutionary change process works. But let me pause. <laughs> Wait, you're just getting started. I could just get started, but I could <laughs> I take over the rest of your time. So let me just use that as a teacher. You have to read, of course, the chapter to find out some more details. Exactly. Uh, also, Reinventing the Planet 
reinventing.org is our website where people can learn more. <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, when I hear you talk about these different levers of change, that reminds me of what Steve Farrell just said about the areas where people in business are now disconnected, right? Like it's a whole multi-level approach to achieving conscious business where you consider a relationship with the earth, with one another. Um, how do Steve, how do people jump in there if they want to be part of changing business? It's, it's actually easy. What's the hard part... <laughs> This is what we do today, where we check our values at the door, and we go into our organization, we close the door, and we say, okay, all of what I believe in, all of the values that I have, all of the conscious person that I am, we're going to ignore now, and we're going to just go straight at sales targets. So that's, that's what's hard, and we're just resisting who we are. We're resisting life. We're resisting why we're here when we do that. So it's much easier to just walk into our organization with the values that we have, with the conscious person that we are, with the connection to nature that we feel, and to just bring those conscious practices that we feel in yoga or at church or walking through nature or looking in a baby's eyes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, into the organization. And to, to work together in a culture, in an environment where we're, where we're honoring this and where when we're conscious like this, of course, we're naturally nurturing uh, in, in the solutions that we create, the products and services. We don't know how to be anything other than that. We're aligned with our values. So we've just got to stop resisting and closing the door to who we really are and, and, what, and why we're here. Uh, leave, leave our door open <laughs> and, and be who we are. And, and then uh, we can take the most powerful institution on the planet, which is business, which are organizations, and get them pointed straight and create this flourishing world that we're, we're all all about. It sounds like it, it only takes our honoring our humanity. <laughs> and, and that sounds like, yes, and it sounds like that's part of our evolution, certainly our conscious evolution at this time, to move in that direction. And yet what David Gershon was just talking about with second order social change is that it actually requires the old system to deconstruct. So David, would you like to say a few more words about that? I want to say it takes something else. It takes a visionary leader like Steve who has such clear values, oneness, happiness, and I forgot the third one. I can't believe I forgot it because it's so cool. But what was it, Steve? Uh, yeah, connection. Connection. Okay. I think it was another word used, which I, which I was writing down my brain, but I forgot it. But minimally oneness, uh, an organization built on oneness. I mean, I think that's the starting point. It's these, I call them higher frequencies, um, that we have to build our organizations and our society, our civilization around. Uh, right now, we build them around values that are whether they're, they're economic values, but they're also just um, survival values. They're not aspirational. They don't inspire. They don't lift. So how does one bring this kind of change about? It needs leadership who are saying yes, and then willing to go through the process of reinvention, 
So what Steve is describing is a second-order change intervention at the scale of an organization. And it's moving into a higher level of performance and social value. One could also say spiritual value in the context of Steve's process. Um, so we can't get the reinvention process happening without leaders showing up like Steve, owning a space and saying, I can do this better. I mean, I, I, the team I can build, the work I can do, I'm willing to take a stand and show up in a new way and make things happen. That's what's needed, among, aside from the processes and tools that we bring. So that sounds like a very exciting, energizing process. It doesn't sound like there's necessarily a, a level of chaos that has to ensue before the new can come in. Well, I would say this. When people are used to a certain way of doing something and have certain expectations, um, they have to deconstruct the worldview they have about how they show up, how vulnerable uh-huh. they're willing to be. Um, how does an organization work when you show up in that level of vulnerability and that level of connection is demanded of you and you're not used to that? Um, how does one work to balance the bottom line with you know, social and spiritual values and get all of those working? That's a, that's a change process and you have to work at it. You're inventing lots of new things. They may or may not work right away. Um, people are going to be disconcerted when things don't work the way they're used to. And so that's second order change in the, in, the, in the heart of the process. It's the messiness of it and the excitement of it. It's the transformation. It's the butterfly. It's, the, it's being the cocoon and coming out something else. But that process is, is a demanding process often for people. Steve, do you want to give a few last words about that? I want to. Yeah. Well, I, I just still say, uh, and David uh, as uh, – just done inspired so many incredible things. If you know his story with this Olympics where people circled the planet uh, and, uh, and there were so many people that tuned in and said, Oh my God, amazing that we can, that, that uh, all over the earth, a baton can be passed. People can carry a torch uh, and we can just feel into our higher humanity. So I, uh, I just want to thank David actually for his many, contributions. If you know about his cool uh, projects with Palo Alto and so many other cities uh, and his amazing work with Second Order Change, it's truly, it's one of a kind. I don't know of anybody else on the planet that's working with Second Order Change like David. So, so well, wonderful work, David. I think that you're both quite unique in the work that you do. And uh, it's, it's a joy to see you appreciating one another And we have uh, also other uh, amazing authors in Circle 3 about conscious enterprise and social change. Uh, And it's just, uh, it's very exciting to hear both of you with your really deep thinking and practical ways to move forward to make the world a better place. Thank you both. Thank you, Deborah. Yeah, so Deborah and uh, David and Steve, thank you uh, so much for that overview of the Circle Three and and people, if you want to look more into them, just uh, Google Empowerment Institute and Google the Conscious Business Declaration, Conscious Business Summit, Conscious Business Magazine. So thanks to all three of you for the contributions you've made, um, you know, to this question. And certainly, when I was with His Holiness the Dalai Lama at his home in November, he stressed, you know, one of the big determiners of where our future goes will depend on how we deal with business, commerce, and money. 
and our concepts of ownership and, and dominance hierarchies and all of that. So this is such an important circle in the book. So thanks again, everyone. I'm here with Dr. Robert Atkinson, one of the book's editors, and he'll introduce the circle and his guests and what chapter they're going to be sharing about. So complete bios for everybody are at the Voice America show page. And so, Bob, over to you. Thank you, Kurt. It's great to be here with you and talking about our new book and to have our special guest with us as well. This is the circle in the book on healing ourselves and the planet or how we can work with the mind-body-spirit connection to heal the whole system. So with us from this circle... We have Dr. Lori Layden, who is an internationally known trauma healing professional, transformational leader, and spiritual mentor. She is the developer of the Grace Process, founder of the nonprofits Create Global Healing and Project Light, as well as the producer of the award-winning documentary, When I Was Young, I Said I Would Be Happy, chronicling the transformation of Rwandan genocide survivors. Lori, great to have you with us. Your chapter oh, wow, is on healing, <laughs> healing ourselves, our children, and our world, where you bring in the transformative process of healing ourselves and the planet back to the heart level. How does this happen? Yeah. And where did, where did your approach come from? And what is your vision of applying these modalities? Mm, thank you so much, Bob, and, and thank you for this opportunity. You know, I, I've waited all my life for the world to be focused singularly on one thing that would unite us and connect us. And uh, we have this pandemic of, um, of health and social justice, uh, and I believe everything is possible from this place. Uh, to answer your question, I might just backtrack a bit to say that my work in the world comes from my own experience of healing my own childhood trauma and searching for uh, modalities that are effective and efficient and can be applied to many people with ease and grace. Um, and so over the years, uh, this is what I've, I've sought out. And then my work in Rwanda uh, that I started, I've been in private practice as a a spiritual mentor and a psychologist for many years, but I was invited to go to Rwanda in 2007 to bring my trauma healing skills to orphan and widow genocide survivors. Um, and I knew that I could bring my, uh, my, the things that I had studied, like emotional freedom technique, which is an important uh, psychological technique that I use, as well as my spiritual practice called the grace process. But the most important thing I did in, to prepare myself to go to Rwanda was to heal my own heart and to be in the presence of my own uh, willingness to transcend my ego. Could I sit in front of uh, a man who had murdered a hundred people and offer my counseling skills? Could I sit with widow and orphan genocide survivors? How could I be fully present in my heart? And this is what really accelerated my work because I, I found the skills to do that um, using heart math skills and EFT and the grace process. Because my notion was, what did I want most when, as a child, I was experiencing the height of my own trauma? 
I wanted um, to be loved. I wanted to be seen. I wanted to be heard. I wanted to know that I mattered. All these things that were weighing heavy on my heart. And as I embarked on healing my own traumas, my heart was healed and opened and in, an, in bringing that to Rwanda, bringing it to post-school shooting environments in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, and Parkland, Florida, and now to Aboriginal and refugee communities in Australia, my heart always breaks open as opposed to breaking down because I see the resilience of the human spirit when their heart-brain-body connection can be healed and, and become resilient. That, that's just a start. Uh, that's a start for one of the reasons I wrote this chapter. Hmm. Wow. A lot of, uh, takes a lot of preparation to do the healing that you've done for others. Very interesting. Um, one of your, one of the things you mentioned in the chapter is about our peace building gifts. And um, I wonder if you yeah. can say a little about what they are and how do we access them? Yes. Well, you know, the beauty is that we actually have the trauma healing technology already that we need. If we could bring it around the world to enough people, that we could become peace builders from the inside out. And one of my biggest educational purposes is to let people know that trauma has been very um, misconceived and misunderstood. We, we feel, we, we often think it is a, an emotional issue, an emotional weakness, and yet uh, science and research tells us that when we experience a trauma, it affects our brain. It, it creates a dysfunction in the brain so that our, literally the physiology, all those stress hormones that flood through our bodies, um, end up being out of balance. And we must use certain techniques to bring our bodies back to balance. So if you can imagine, when we've experienced a trauma, like a shocking thing, uh, something unexpected, something like COVID, something that makes us feel threatened, something where we feel trapped and alone and isolated, like where there's no way out. COVID is actually um, uh, triggering the previous traumas that we had because we are now, we have a collective trauma. But we have an opportunity in that collective trauma to work together to heal that. And what HeartMath Institute has showed us is that the heart has its own brain and when we can calm our stress and trauma physiology, the brain and the heart work really well together. And it turns out that the heart secretes a master hormone called ANF, which regulates whether we are triggering our reptilian brain, which is our survival mode, or whether we're, we're triggering the part of our brain that is most wired for our highest human gifts. So that, that part of our brain is called the prefrontal cortex, and that is the seat of our uh, problem-solving, our intuition, our inner wisdom, our creativity, our sense of connectedness and transcendency. And so uh, I, I believe that we are heart-wired for the divine when we're able to heal those traumas and activate that highest part of our heart-brain-body connection because then we have all the answers inside of us. Does that make sense? 
Mm, yeah, that's great. So uh, with a few seconds that we have left, um, can you say what a couple of things might be that uh, others like parents, educators, mental health professionals might be able to do to help youth become peace builders from the inside out? Yes. Well, most importantly, the first thing we have to do is we have to put up we have to be in service to our own healing first. It's not about fixing anything outside of us. But when we heal our own traumas, when we find our own sense of inner peace, and we create a resonance field, literally, and this has been proven with heart math, where others can step into that with more of a sense of peace, making it easier for them. And so our greatest service work in the world is truly being in service to our own healing first. And then we have access to the gifts and talents we need to to be in service to others. Mm, wow. Thank you so much, Laurie, for your thoughts and insights here and for your chapter in the book. I think uh, we can say that uh, what your chapter and many others in the book offer is an understanding that the evolutionary impulse follows a purposeful trajectory toward fulfilling an innate potential both on the personal and collective levels. Thank you again, Tori. Back to you, you, Kurt. Yeah, absolutely. So, Bob and Lori, thanks so much. And I think, you know, a good testament to how important this circle on healing ourselves and the planet is that this next program that we're doing on Voice America in September, which is all about global events that spin off the thematics of the book, those that involve uh, healing both personally and collectively are really just... uh, prominent. And also, I think, you know, we've all been surprised while we've been on this program the last uh, few days, putting it together, that this book has become number one at Amazon, both in personal transformation and philosophy and and spirituality. So it shows that there's tremendous amount of important information here. So we're going to be back again in a moment with just another discussion from the chapters about this book. But we'll go over first to an announcement from the publisher, Beyond Words, Atria Books, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. Hello, this is Richard Cohn, publisher of Beyond Words. We are very honored to be partnering with Simon & Schuster and the Synergy Foundation to bring you a new, thought-provoking book for these challenging times. It is called Our Moment of Choice, and it features 43 of the world's most well-known spiritual thinkers, offering practical solutions to the most pressing problems of our time, from economic inequality and social injustice to climate change and spiritual disconnection. Deepak Chopra offers his thoughts on how our inherent wholeness is not a choice, while Greg Braden suggests that we can change our world by first realizing that none of us are separate from each other. Lynn McTaggart investigates the link between altruism and self-healing. Michael Bernard Beckwith, Bruce Lipton, and many others share their thoughts on moving forward in ways that expand our consciousness and benefit the global community. Our moment of choice calls on us all to be the co-creators of a just, unified, peaceful, and thriving world. The time has come for all humanity to be united in purpose. 
This is our call to action. This is our collective moment of choice upon which our future depends. You can purchase your copy today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Beyond Words, or your local independent bookstore. Welcome. This is your Voice America host, Dr. Kurt Johnson, and we're here discussing chapters from the book, Our Moment of Choice, Evolutionary Visions, and Hope for the Future. I'm here with Greg Braden, a member of the book team that produced the book and the author of the book's introduction. Greg will introduce the circle, his guests, and what chapters they're going to be sharing about. Full bios for everyone are at the Voice America show page. So, over to Greg. Thank you so much, Kurt. It's, uh, it's an honor, it's a joy to be with you and with our audience today. I'm absolutely thrilled to be talking about this new book, Our Moment of Choice. And we do have two of the contributors with us today. We have Dr. Jude Curvin. We have Lynn McTaggart. And the three of us are going to talk about one of the circles in the book. In this particular book, the way it was put together, the, what would typically be called a section is called a circle. Each circle has about five to six contributors uh, that have written their contribution, their perspective on that particular topic. Circle number five is what we're working with today, and it is integrating science and spirituality. And I, I think this is such a powerful circle because it is all about our story. As we integrate the best science of the modern world with the wisdom of 5,000 years of recorded human history, and the, the spiritual traditions, we begin to think of ourselves and our relationship to our own bodies, to one another, to the world, to the cosmos in new and empowering ways. Man, I can't think of a better time to do that. So I'm going to introduce uh, Dr. Jude Curvin. She is a cosmologist. She's an archaeologist, a planetary healer, a futurist, an author uh, of six nonfiction books currently available in 16 languages and 26 countries. Lynn McTaggart uh, is also a, an author. She's an award-winning journalist. Uh, she's the author of seven books, including The Power of Eight, that we'll talk about a little bit today. Uh, the seminal book, The Field, The Intention Experiment, The Bond. Uh, her books are now translated into 30 languages, and Lynn is consistently voted among the world's top 100 spiritual leaders for her groundbreaking work with consciousness and the power of intention. So I'm I'm honored to welcome both of you uh, to our, our program today to talk about your contributions to this book. Jude, I'm, I'm going to begin with you. You make a statement in the book, and what you say is that leading-edge science across all scales and domains of existence is revealing that our universe exists and evolves as, as a, a unified entity. And that is a quote from you, and this is such a radical departure from the way we've been taught to think about the universe as a, uh, as a dead and a sterile uh, entity that is something that just happened to occur uh, in a random fashion. So I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about what those discoveries are and what you mean when you say that we now have what's called a whole world view and what that means to us as we think about ourselves in, in this universe. Thanks, Greg. And it's wonderful to be with you and Lynn and Kurt and everyone who's listening to us today. Um, I'd like to take a step back into that question, really. I mean, we're challenged by two 
was challenged by a virus that mm. stopped us in our tracks. But not only humanity, um, but our entire planetary home, Gaia, is threatened by a more fundamental dis-ease, our collected and fragmented worldview of the nature of reality. So our worldviews drive our behaviors. And so by collectively seeing the world as separate and solely materialistic, we behaved accordingly. And as you mentioned, for the first time, discoveries of leading edge science are converging and actually integrating with universal spirituality and, and wisdom teachings, revealing the innate unity of the whole world of reality itself. So this emergent whole worldview is fundamentally a cosmology of consciousness, a science of love. It's evidence-based and it's unifying frameworks and invitation to understand and experience and embody its essential unity expressed in radical diversity. Uh, we say a whole worldview to think cosmic, feel global and act local. So it's enabling us to remember who we really are, not as separate from each other and the wider world, but as microcosmic co-creators of a universe that, as you quoted, exists and evolves as a unified entity that's innately intelligent and meaningful, and which is so exquisitely set up, it has an evolutionary impulse to evolve from simplicity to complexity. It's great thought in the mind of the cosmos. So its innate unity reveals that we have inherent and natural supernormal powers of intention, as Lynn so amazingly has shown, intuition, tele telepathic, remote awareness, and much more. And that, should we choose, we can also have access to multidimensional realms of elemental and archetypal intelligence. So as we all are saying, this is our moment of choice, perhaps our final moment of choice. And by restoring what it means to be human, as you say, Greg, I too believe we can restore our relationships with ourselves, with each other, with Gaia and the whole world and cosmos. And instead of being plunderers, we can consciously evolve to become co-evolutionary partners with Gaia and her children and our entire universe. Mm, beautiful. Jude, you know, that is so eloquent when you, when you state this so succinctly. Uh, and it's, it's a beautiful example as a scientist. Uh, I was trained as a, an earth scientist um, specializing in, in the marine sciences, marine biology, marine geology. And one of the things that, that I found was that science historically has compartmentalized our view of the universe into the boxes that we call chemistry, biology, geology, physics. And now the conditions of the world, among the ones that you stated, are pushing us to cross those traditional boundaries because nature and the universe doesn't know about those boundaries. It doesn't work that way. And for us to understand our true relationship with ourselves and the world around us, we've got to integrate what we've come to understand through the scientific methods uh, about ourselves. And this is, this is such a, a beautiful statement. So thank you for that, Jude. And, and Len, this is where your work, I think your work has been so powerful, shifting such a powerful paradigm uh, from academia and theory into actually experiencing and living the relationships that Jude has just, uh, just shared with us. So Len, you, um, 
your, your, your title of this section is called The Power of Eight. But I, I hesitate a little bit because I don't want you to be confined by that title. What I'd like to ask you to do, uh, as an investigative journalist, you were award an award-winning investigative journalist, and you began investigating the phenomenon that Jude is referring to and the potential of our relationship to the cosmos, to a field of energy that connects all things, our own bodies, uh, and what that means for us in our everyday lives. So I'm, I'm wondering, Lynn, if you can first maybe begin by sharing what for you was a, a pivotal discovery that absolutely tipped the scale uh, of doubt uh, into the acceptance that we are in fact part of this field of, of information that permeates all of existence and that we can apply it in our everyday lives in practical ways. If you could begin by, by sharing that with us. Sure, I mean, I got into this field over 20 years ago just trying to figure out why spiritual healing works. Because I kept thinking, if you can have a thought and send it to someone else and make them better, then that in itself undermines everything we think about how the world works. Now, I thought I was going to find something simple like, you know, oh, well, there are human energy fields. But I found something much grander, much more akin to what Jude is talking about, which was frontier scientists, physicists, and other scientists all discovering one tiny portion of the same thing, which was that we are all part of a much larger intergalactic superorganism, that we are part of an, uh, a colossal energy field, and that rather than being these discrete little uh, separate objects, like little billiard balls operating according to fixed laws in time and space, we're much more like vibrating and energetic entities that are all part of this whole and all interacting with it. I guess the thing that really convinced me, aside from the slow accumulation of all of this information, all of these different scientists and putting that together and synthesizing it, which, which I had to do in the field, was seeing a lot of evidence that thoughts are an actual something with the capacity to change matter. Thoughts are not only things, but thoughts are things that affect other things. And so I saw plenty of evidence of that in big studies at Princeton University, long-term studies showing human beings can affect machines, to studies in Texas of with people like the late William Broads, showing that we can affect everything from single-celled organisms to full-fledged human beings. But I, I then started investigating it myself because as this hard-nosed journalist that I suppose I am at my heart, I kept wanting to say, okay, well, how far can we take this? You know, are we talking about just shifting a quantum particle or are we talking about curing cancer with our thoughts? So I set up the intention experiment which was a worldwide experiment using certain of these consciousness researchers, these scientists, uh, creating an actual experiment and then inviting my readers from around the world to take part. And I think it took me a long time to actually believe the evidence that we were accumulating. We've run 34 of them now. 30 have shown measurable positive responses. But the thing that's probably nailed it for me is the fact that we've done seven experiments trying to lower violence in war-torn areas. And we've carefully measured the results. And in every single instance, 
not only have we lowered violence, whether it was a war-torn area or a violent area like St. Louis, Missouri, but the people taking part have changed, have changed fundamentally. Their lives have become more peaceful. About half of them say, because I survey them, that they're starting to hug strangers. Mm. So what this has shown me is that when we act, as Jude's talking about it, according to our real essence and not this phony essence, this dog-eat-dog separatist mental attitude that we've been operating according to an outdated and incorrect science, we start realizing that we can create miracles. Absolutely, absolutely, Alan. And, you know, this is, this is where we move from academia and theory uh, into practical applications. We're living a time of extremes. We're not going to think our way out of the, the multiple consecutive concurrent crises that we see at our doorstep now. We've got to think and live differently. And I, I want to thank both of you today because you've given us rock-solid reasons based upon rock-solid science to do just that, to think differently about ourselves, our relationship to our own bodies, to one another, to the earth and beyond. Uh, and that is where we begin the new human story. So uh, I think this is something that, that the timing couldn't be better. I think the timing is perfect for all of us. Thank you both for uh, sharing your your insights and for the lives that you've dedicated to helping us know ourselves in, in new and empowering ways. Kurt, back over to you. Well, thanks so much, Greg, Jude, and Lynn. I know that this is going to interest people not only in your contributions to the book, but looking deeper into each of, uh, of the work that you all do. So thanks again. And We're here discussing chapters from the book, Our Moment of Choice, Evolutionary Visions, and Hope for the Future. I'm here with Diane Marie Williams of the Source of Synergy Foundation and the Evolutionary Leaders, and she'll introduce the circle and her guests and what chapters they're going to be sharing about. So complete bios for everyone are, of course, at the Voice America show page. So, uh, Diane, over to you. Thank you so much, Kurt. We are delighted to have three very special guests with us today, Eben Alexander, Karen Newell, and Claudia Wells. Eben Alexander is the author of Proof of Heaven and co-author with Karen Newell of Living in a Mindful Universe. Karen is also the co-founder of Sacred Acoustics. Claudia Welsh is the chairman of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and on the boards of the Global Coherence Initiative and Space for Humanity. The four of us have contributed chapters to Circle Six, New Frontiers Beyond Space and Time, along with Eve Constantine and Reverend Kristen Sorensen in our moment of choice. In the book, our circle begins with a statement, outer space to inner space. We view the cosmos as a fully integrated whole. We know that our view of the cosmos profoundly impacts how we live in it. And once we awaken to the cosmic dimensions of our being, this shift can support humanity's awakening, including the choices we make at our moment of choice. So, Karen and Evan, I'd like to start with you two. Your chapter, Chapter 28, is titled Liberating Human Potential. What do you think is the relationship between our inner and outer worlds, and how can that relationship support us during our moment of choice? Well, I think it's important to point out in any discussion of kind of consciousness and our awareness of the world, uh, of this uh, 
beautiful, reflective nature of inner and outer. It's something we discuss in great detail in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, especially in terms of subjective versus objective uh, realities. Uh, And we make the point that, in fact, no one has ever really known anything other than the inside of their own consciousness. Uh, And so in many ways, we're all living a subjective reality. And to come to any kind of agreement about an objective reality is very challenging. The supreme illusion is something that we discuss, and that is um, that, in fact, nobody has ever known anything other than the inside of their own consciousness, and it's a very heavily coded model of what we presume to be out there in the world. Uh, And also in this discussion, uh, important to point out that there is a, a principle of consilience which means that when we look at uh, fields like as vastly diverse as quantum physics, as uh, the neuroscience of consciousness, philosophy of mind, uh, and also many examples of non-local consciousness like telepathy, precognition, psychokinesis, etc., all this is revealing to us that mind is something far more fundamental than we tend to believe. Uh, Our culture uh, teaches us that we're physical beings in this world and that the world exists out there independently of us, and yet some of the deepest... uh, work in consciousness research in quantum physics uh, in recent years really shows us that is not true uh, and that, in fact, uh, we live in this, uh, this internal world and we see it as the external world and yet we have tremendous influence over it far more uh, than we would normally think. Uh, for example, placebo effect is a beautiful example of how mind over matter is a rule of this universe. In fact, I love a beautiful quote um, that really, I think, puts this in perspective. Uh, it's from Sir James Jeans, who is a renowned British uh, astronomer, physicist, and mathematician working in the mid-20th century, who said, mind no longer appears to be an accidental intruder into the realm of matter. We are beginning to suspect that we ought rather to hail it, that is mind, as the creator and governor of this realm. And so, this mind, what is this mind? It sounds so esoteric, but actually it each and every one of us is a part of this collective mind. And so what do we mean by that? Well, all of this is related to our inner world, our beliefs, our emotions, our dreams, our aspirations, our fears, our anxieties. All of that consists of mind. And before we get too far with thinking all of this is happening in the mental realm, which of course is what Sir James Jeans was talking about, we're also talking about the heart. And all of this together is how we're connected through this binding force of love. And together... All of us, all of humanity, all of consciousness, we really have this birthright to take responsibility for what this mind is creating out in our physical world. And so as each of us takes time to go within, to learn about what's really behind all of those fears and anxieties, how to, you know, really bring the the desires that we have into fruition, if each of us can find a way to do this, moving beyond the everyday, moving beyond the roles we play, really get into that connection we have with others, the more of us who take this responsibility to heart, literally, the more that we will start to see 
our outer world change. The outer world is a reflection of our inner world and vice versa. These work together. We're not the victims of circumstance. We're not the victims of what's going on around us. Each of us can play a significant role in really helping humanity evolve into wonderful, most fantastic world of our dreams if only we put our minds and hearts to it. Thank you so much, Eben and Karen, for reminding us that we're all connected to the collective mind and the heart. And that leads beautifully into um, Claudia's segment. So thank you so much. So, Claudia, let's turn to you. Your chapter, Chapter 32, has a very intriguing title, Humanity's Change of Heart. What do you mean by your chapter title, and how does it relate to the profound moment of choice we're in? Thank you, Diane. I appreciate the question and the opportunity to answer it, and it's such a privilege to be with you and to follow Evan and Karen. And you're right, it was a perfect setup for me. The meaning of the chapter title, Humanity's Change of Heart, is really quite literal. I mean it literally. We've all had the experience, I would guess, of a personal change of heart, where we suddenly have a different feeling or attitude about something, And most of the time, it's in a positive direction. Somehow, we feel more accepting, more forgiving, more loving, almost like a higher version of ourselves just takes over and invites a different behavior. And then when we're asked about it, we usually just say, oh, well, I had a change of heart. I don't know. We don't try to explain it because in some ways, it's beyond explanation. We didn't go through the same linear cognitive process that we go through when we change our minds about something, which for anything like me, it's usually harder and takes a lot longer. Where a change of heart is sort of more sudden and seemingly mysterious, more like an epiphany than a decision. So we just take for granted that this happens to us, but in the chapter, I write about the science of heart coherence, which is really the science of changing our hearts, and explains how we can do this intentionally to a very simple but profound practice that increases our heart's inclination and capacity for this thing called coherence. And so what that is, and there are a lot of ways to think about it, but for now, we can think of it as a reflection of harmony in the body, of connectedness in the body, of expanded perception, and of love. And it actually occurs naturally when we experience love and compassion and gratitude and other emotions that remember our connectedness. We also know that this energetic harmony isn't limited to our own bodies because there are probably multiple ways, but at least one way is that the heart's electromagnetic field is part of the planetary electromagnetic field that includes everyone and everything. So when we increase our individual coherence, we also contribute to increased coherence in the world. So this is a choice. We can choose to create greater harmony in ourselves and in our world through our own hearts. And while this happens one heart at a time, it doesn't take every heart to make a meaningful difference. There's a lot of scientific inspiration to believe that through synergy, a tipping point or critical mass of coherence is enough. One of my favorite examples of this is from the physical chemist, Ilya Prigogine, who demonstrated that when a system is far from equilibrium, like our world is right now, small islands of coherence can shift the entire system to a higher order. 
So I'm suggesting that creating those islands is a powerful personal strategy for world change. And I'm proposing that in this Anthropocene age, where humanity is likened to a force of nature causing harm to Earth, that through a critical mass of coherence, we can move from, I love the way Marshall Lefferts of the Resonance Science Foundation puts it, and really puts it best, we can move from a force of nature causing harm to causing harmony. Think about that. Humanity becoming a beneficial force of nature, consciously, intentionally causing harmony through an energetic change of heart. And I'll end with one of the reasons this chapter is in the Frontiers Beyond Space and Time section. I work with the Institute of Noetic Sciences, as you said, Diane, and that was founded by Apollo 14 astronaut and sixth man to walk on the moon, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, after he had an epiphany in space about the harm we were doing to our home planet and about the harmony or the unconditional love that he experienced as not only intrinsic within the universe, but as the universal organizing principle, just as it is the organizing principle in our own bodies. So add to that that the sacred Upanishad text reportedly considers the heart as the fulcrum of the entire cosmos. The harmonizing energy of our own hearts may transcend all space and time and be limitless in its reach, and I think that participating in that possibility is a choice worth making. So thank you, Diane and everybody. Thank you so much, Claudia, for sharing with us how the science of changing our hearts through greater synergy, coherence, and harmony can support us at this moment of choice. It's so important. So this is the close of our segment. Thank you so much, Claudia, Eben, and Karen, for your enlightening contributions to this truly inspiring program, for being contributors to our moment of choice, and for the groundbreaking work you're each doing to usher in new frontiers beyond space and time. So back to you, Kurt. Hey, thanks so much. So thanks, Diane and Claudia, Eben, and Karen. It's really an interesting and important discussion about new frontiers because certainly everybody has been living in one since the pandemic and this emphasis on the heart is something that rolls right into what we've all had to learn as a collective. So thanks again and we're going to be back in a moment with a discussion from the seventh and concluding circle of this important book and as many of you have mentioned in these last segments, the book's been occupying a number of number one spots at Amazon which is really fulfilling, uh, Ray, the whole direction of this book. I'm here with Dr. Robert Atkinson, one of the book's editors, and he'll introduce the circle, his guests, and what chapters they're going to be sharing about. Complete bios for everyone are at the Voice America show page. So over to Bob. Thank you, Kurt. It's great to be here with you and talking about our new book and to have our two very special guests with us as well. The final circle in the book is the big picture for how we can take a holistic systems view to envision the whole and come up with what is needed to support sustainability, prosperity, and global transformation on all levels at the same time, rather than raising any part above the others by seeing all as, the, as, all as part of the same whole in a way that mutually benefits all parts of the whole. So with us from this circle, we have Dr. Gene Houston and Dr. Irvin Laszlo. Gene Houston is a renowned scholar and researcher in human capacities and the author of some 26 books with more than 40 years experience 
as co-director of the Foundation for Mind Research. She has been a consultant to the United Nations, as well as the founder of a program of cross-cultural mythic and spiritual studies dedicated to empowering change agents. Irvin Laszlo is the founder of Systems Philosophy and General Evolution Theory, the author or editor of more than, more than 70 books and was twice nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. He serves as president of the Club of Budapest and director of the Laszlo Institute of New Paradigm Research. Jean, I'd like to start with you and your chapter on the way of the social artist, where you envision a planetary society in which people learn to be the possible humans we are meant to be. What does this mean? And what role do social artists play in this evolutionary process? Well, let me begin with a story that I actually have never told publicly, but it's the story that got me involved in social artistry. Social artistry is human development and social development in the light of these incredible changes that are happening in our time. Uh, years ago, I was brought to advise a worldwide, world-known uh, organization of helpers. And um, I, I walked in and I saw one of these lovely 22-year-old, kindly young men saying to a group, Hello there, my little brown brother. Let me show you the American way of doing things. Whoa, that really got to me. I said, Joe, do you realize what you're doing? You're trying to foist our relatively young culture on a culture that is thousands of years old, that understands how to really live in a world, how to be ecologically observant, how to tap into the depths of the human psyche. But you are trying to put on the crust of a of a culture that has very little to do that you have more to learn from them than we than we can really give and so i began to create situations in which there would be very real ecological social and psychological you know interaction between and that made me realize that this was a form of artistry the social artist is an artist of human development and an artist of seeing the way cultures can nourish each other um, the social artist is one who, like an artist, prepares himself, herself, to have to really make use of all manner of human capacities, uh, interior psychological capacities, so they're not stuck with one particular personality. They realize that we are not encapsulated bags of skin dragging around dreary little egos, you know, that we are symbiotic with the world and we have so many more different persona within us. The social artist is one who really works with the major narrative or mythic structure of a culture. So for example, if I'm in India, I work with the Ramayana or the life of Gandhi. If I was in England, I might work with the great grail stories, you know. In America, there are so many different stories, although the one that people seem to really love is The Wizard of Oz, <laughs> as a mythic journey. But the, the, the point is, in the over 100 cultures and, and societies I've worked in, I have found that people are desperate, desperate to, be, to really make themselves capable and capacious to be able to deal with the extraordinary complexity of our times. And of course, we are living in a time of galloping complexity with the virus and with the breakdown of so many societies. So 
what we do is um, I, I help people develop all kinds of inner inner capacities because often the, the the great subtle interchange between the inner capacities and the outward expression is something that when brought together in a luminous manner brings you the strength, uh, mind strength, soul depth, and above all, crossing the great divide of otherness between the inner and outer and between ourselves and the others so that in point of fact, we are able to be of use and then to train people to do the same, but within the context of the honoring of their own culture. And what I have found from this work over many years is that uh, this work, uh, in part inspired by my adopted mother, who you can see behind me, that's Margaret Mead. <laughs> you know, I was the adopted daughter of Margaret Mead. I had a wonderful mother, she had a wonderful daughter, but that was our relationship. And she said, Jane, go out. This is on her deathbed. She was quite noisy. Go out and activate the human potential all over the world. And so she gave me letters of introduction to figures who were major players in their culture. And that's how it began with me. So to date, it's over a hundred societies and cultures. We are in the time of the great change. We're in the time of not only whole system transition, but also a systemic rethinking of the human being, of the human capacity, and how to educate and evoke this capacity to be of a new order of use and usefulness in this world and time. And that is what social artistry is, and I hope I live enough years to continue to be of use. Wow. Thank you, Jean, so much. And if we have a minute, maybe uh, later, we might be able to talk a little more about how our moment of choice leaves us at the stage now where the real work of humanity begins. Yes. <clears throat> Irvin, your chapter is on reasoning and experiencing our way to oneness, in which you offer a vision of wholeness, starting with moving beyond the misperception of ourselves as separate. Can you tell us a little more about the two paths we can take to recover our oneness? There is the inner path and the outer path. Outer path, science, the inner path, our own consciousness, mind. Both of them are needed. As Jean was just saying, social artistry is needed today. And we have to become such artists. And for that, I would like to add, we need to observe as well as experience oneness. Oneness, when you observe it through science, through the lens of science, then we could describe it also as coherence or as harmony. Oneness means that all parts of a system work together. They're all tuned to one another and the entire system is oriented toward the survival of the whole. And we can experience that also. It's not only it's a good thing to know things, to observe things, to learn things, but nothing stays in our mind and stays with us and changes our beha behavior more than experiences, experiencing oneness. And that means turning off that so-called monkey chatter of the brain, of the mind, of the everyday affairs, the preoccupation, and moving a little bit deeper. 
this very how you move into deeper is there are so many ways and it's your choice. But every once in a while, we have to discover who we are, have to discover how we can really become what we want to be, what we are meant to be. And that means going back to ourselves. The Japanese say forest bathing, for example, one way. Go out into the forest, which is a big city, so it's more and more difficult, of course, and try to be one with the trees, with the clouds, with the brook, every, with, the, with the ruffle of the wind, the whisper of the wind through the leaves. Feel that oneness. You can feel that oneness in art. You can feel that oneness in the, in the greatest moments of poetry, of, of theater, of music. All of these are avenues toward feeling that oneness. I used to be a concert pianist in my youth, you know, and that experience of performing, feeling oneself, become one with the partners, with the orchestra, with the chamber group, and even with the public, when everything goes well, that has always stayed with me. So the oneness is what the great scientist William James has said, the religious experience, which is the sense of our being part of something larger than ourselves, being one, becoming one with that. We can call it the great spirit, Muhammad, God, Tao, whatever you give, name you give it, or the spirit of the universe as you feel it, as you are part of it. That has become so necessary these days to become coherent within ourselves. That is oneness, intrinsic oneness. But we also need to be warm with the world around us. We need to be extrinsically coherent also. One with the world, with the trees, with the clouds, with the people, with nature, with the animals, with the planet. If you can feel that, then of course you are more than coherent then what is known, you're becoming super coherent. Coherence is the precondition of life. Super coherence is the precondition of flourishing, of thriving, of living a fulfilled life. <clears throat> Let me just add to this one element, as Jean was, already, Jean was already mentioning. We live in a unique moment, in a fascinating moment, at the same time a critical moment, a moment of decision. It is a crisis, but a crisis is not only danger, it's also an opportunity. And here we have the opportunity to become something more than what we have been. And this something more is the sense of merging with, becoming part of something larger. This is our chance to move into that higher dimension or deeper dimension, depending on how you like to put it. This is our moment because our old selves have been shaken to the root. They have been shaken up. We know that the crisis that we're experiencing is not purely by chance. Something has gone wrong. And if we go back to where we have been, something more will be wrong again. But here's our chance to change, to transform, to become more than we have been. And part of this moreness is oneness is the sense of becoming one with other people, with the world around us. This, I think, is what's so supremely important today, to experience oneness, 
to know oneness, also the necessity for oneness through biology, through science, that tells us oneness is a precondition of life and experiences, because we all have this oneness coded into our genes. It's in every cell of our body. Let's pick up, go down deep and find it, and then act as one so that the world around us would not be broken into so many fragments, but we continue to act as one, as one to evolve as one. Mm. Thank you very much, Irvin. So that um, <clears throat> makes it very clear that we have both lived experience to get us there, as well as reasoned, uh, the ability to reason or even experiment our way to oneness as well. So, and it's, it's interesting, it seems like there is a, some overlap in what both of you are sharing. And um, I guess we have maybe another minute or two to see if we can um, want to tie this, tie what you've each said together in some way. Uh, so if you want to each take another, another minute to um, say a bit more about how what each of you have already said kind of leads to the same outcome for humanity. Jean, why don't you start on that? All right. Well, we now know that we don't just live in the universe, but the universe lives in us. And that we are, if I were to put it theologically, I would say we are God essence stuffed into a biodegradable space-time suit, which is ourselves. And that, you know, in my work, studying the range and the depth of human capacities, I discover not only what is the supreme experience, it is oneness, but it is as if all experiences are on the way to get to that oneness. It's always there in the back of the mind, the front of the soul, reminding us you are one. Now, I also believe where we are in this unique time in human history, which we have seen before, this, look, it's often a time of horrendous crisis. Look at the 14th century perhaps the most difficult century in Europe. Pandemic plague killed half the people of Europe. Terrible uh, breakdown of cultures and of, uh, and of societies. But what followed it? The Renaissance, Renascida, hey, <laughs> the rebirthing time. I believe we are also in that time of the great darkness of culture that precedes something that is becoming generative beneath the surface crust of consciousness in people everywhere. It is a spiritual momentum. It is a momentum toward oneness, and it is a momentum toward uh, what I feel is a luminous transitional time of growth in art, in music, in culture, in human, in, in human self-understanding, and very possibly the movement toward a world unity in cultures and societies. We are at the brink of a renascida, a renaissance. I would just add to that, Jean, that we need great teachers. And in you, we have one great teacher. You, sir. <laughs> you, sir. And uh, we have the opportunity to become more than we have been. I think it's one of the most tragic mistakes 
that we could ever commit is to forget the crisis that we have, saying now it's over. It's not over yet, but mm-hmm. maybe in a year or we'll say it's over, and then let's just go back to business as usual. Going back to business as usual would be a tragic mistake. Not only business, but culture as usual, thinking as, as usual, civic life as usual. We need to go further than that. What we have learned is in this crisis that we are all in the same boat. It's fantastic that all of 7.5 billion or whatever people are exposed to this virus and they are all feeling to some level of fear, some level of concern, and we are all feeling that we are in it together. This is something that we need to make use of. Not the fear, but the sense of togetherness. Great moments in history, great trials, great challenges always call force cooperation, collaboration, empathy, and acts of heroism. As a child, I lived through the end of Second World War in Europe. And I've read about it, but I've also witnessed fantastic acts of solidarity among people who were subjected to the Nazi terror and they were liberated gradually as the, as the Second World War came to an end. And how did everybody pull together? Nobody was fighting the others. We were all on the same side. We were all trying to accomplish something. Not even many people got sick somehow. We were all just too busy fighting together. I was only 12 years old when the war came to an end. But I sensed that, I felt that. And then there was a period of renaissance, as Jean Jean was saying. A renaissance came in 1944, 45, 46, as life entered again into the ravished world of Europe after the Second World War, and people could get together. Every time a new neon sign came up in the city of Budapest, I celebrated. It was my city coming back to life again. It was a fantastic feeling. I think we are ready for this, such a feeling again, to know that we can come forward, not come back, but we can come forward to life, to a life that is worthy of the human potential, a life of thriving and flourishing. That is why this is the most exciting and also the most promising era in history. We can be thankful for the challenges, not fear them, but overcome them. This is our chance. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, we could go on forever, I'm sure, with this such an important conversation for us to be having and to have the world hear more about. Um, Maybe, so we do have a little time, another minute or two for a final thought from, from each of you. Well, I believe we are in this very potent time in a place in our mind, body, psyches, and our collective psyche of the time of recreation and regeneration. This is the time of design. (laughs) You know, design the re-understanding of who and what we are and the enormous potentials that we contain and the utilization of them. The fact of the rise of women to full partnership with men in the whole domain of human affairs is perhaps one of the biggest shifts in history. And when you bring 50% of the genius of the human race back, (laughs) then we are in another order altogether. 
there is a poem that I know that um, I think really says where we are. I'm going to put it in its theological context. It goes, the human heart can go to the lengths of God. Dark and cold we may be, but this is no winter now. The frozen misery of centuries, cracks, breaks, begins to move. The thunder is the thunder of the flood, the flow, the upstart spring. Thank God our time is now, when wrong comes up to meet us everywhere, never to leave us till we take the longest stride of soul folk ever took. Affairs are now soul-sized. The enterprise is exploration into God. What are you making for? It takes so many thousand years to wake. But will you wake? For pity's sake. That's where we are. Let's begin together to enter into the great time of designing. The designing for a new order of coherence the designing of our minds, our bodies, the interrelationship crossing the great divide of otherness, and the design of being deep and true partners to our beloved mother, the earth. I would just say this is beautiful and there's not much to add. A little bit that I want to add is that, let's go with Einstein saying, who said, separateness is an illusion. Mm. That's the key also to oneness. Let me also add one other element here. It's really the same element, but I just want to make it clear. This is not just theory. This is not just thinking. We have to move into action. We have to realize that what we consider a better life, a better world, is feasible, is realizable. Business as, as serving the shareholders only is not good for business, not good for the world. Business as, ser- as serving the, the uh, stakeholders, which is everybody around it, is good business. Politics as only putting the politi- given political party first or even the political nation first, and never mind the rest. That is not good politics. We have to move into an understanding that the wholeness encompasses all of us. We are all part of that whole. You have to give priority to the whole, not to the part. Good medicine is looking at the entire body, even in the context of its environment. That is good healing, good policy, good politics is moving at the whole world system and trying to create a flourishing, working world in the in its in a present very fragmented and crisis-prone state. Wholeness, oneness. Yes, learning to be different, learning to be better. Finally, learning to be what we truly are. Because all life is whole. We have said goodbye to that, but it's a temporary goodbye because we cannot continue like that. Now is the time to change. Thank goodness we are living in this time, just as Jean said. Thank goodness, but let's do something about it. Change yourself so that you can change the world. Wow. So thanks so much, Bob, Gene, and Irvin. I mean, there couldn't be a better way to close out the discussion of these seven circles without this really brilliant comment that you've given on circle seven, the big picture. Uh, So thanks again. And we're going to be back in just a moment with all of our guest hosts, Diane Williams, Deborah Moldau, Rick Ulfick, and Robert Atkinson. 
to wrap up what has really been an amazingly inspiring conversation about this important new book, Our Moment of Choice. But first, this short announcement from the publisher, Beyond Words, Atria Books, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. Hello, this is Richard Cohn, publisher of Beyond Words. We are very honored to be partnering with Simon & Schuster and the Synergy Foundation to bring you a new thought-provoking book for these challenging times. It is called Our Moment of Choice, and it features 43 of the world's most well-known spiritual thinkers, offering practical solutions to the most pressing problems of our time, from economic inequality and social injustice to climate change and spiritual disconnection. Deepak Chopra offers his thoughts on how our inherent wholeness is not a choice, while Greg Braden suggests that we can change our world by first realizing that none of us are separate from each other. Lynn McTaggart investigates the link between altruism and self-healing. Michael Bernard Beckwith, Bruce Lipton, and many others share their thoughts on moving forward in ways that expand our consciousness and benefit the global community. Our moment of choice calls on us all to be the co-creators of a just, unified, peaceful, and thriving world. The time has come for all humanity to be united in purpose. This is our call to action. This is our collective moment of choice upon which our future depends. You can purchase your copy today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Beyond Words, or your local independent bookstore. Welcome back from our discussions with authors from the seven thematic circles of our moment of choice. This is your Convergence host, Dr. Kurt Johnson. As we've said, these discussions parallel the content in the special issue of Light on Light magazine, also entitled Our Moment of Choice. It will appear in September, right after the Our Moment of Choice book launch. It will include not only excerpts from the book organized around the seven thematic circles, but will also have illustrated reports from 15 events and initiatives of this summer-fall global event season, which represent outreach, messaging, and activism connected to these seven crucial areas of transformative change. And because of that, we're also going to be hosting a second Voice America special posting around mid-September. That special will be called Our Moment of Choice 2. So we'll all be joining you again for that special broadcast, and Rick and I particularly will be co-hosting guests from across these diverse and exciting global events and initiatives, all of which are going to be online and nearly all which are free. So that will be our second chance to explore Our Moment of Choice, Evolutionary Visions, and Hope for the Future. So let's wrap up this first special by asking each of Deborah, Diane, and Bob, and Rick to comment just a bit about what they've just heard from these 17 contributors to the book, especially since most of you are also involved in putting the book together. And also, if you know of future events and activities about the book, 
tell us about those as well. So let's start with Diane. Thank you, Kurt. Well, I just wish to thank all of the amazing contributors of this program and everyone making significant choices by putting forth elevated thoughts, words, actions, intentions, innovations, possibilities, and so much more into the collective consciousness field. As a result, the whole is being impacted in powerful ways and offering great hope for our future. In the coming months, the Source of Synergy Foundation will be offering our Moment of Choice Synergy Salons courses, and other opportunities to come together as individuals, communities, and networks to exchange and explore evolutionary visions, creative solutions, and action steps that we trust will help amplify and create momentum for the conscious evolutionary movement for global transformation. If you would like to receive information about these opportunities, you can sign up at ourmomentofchoice.com and we'll keep you informed. And you can also visit our websites at sourceofsynergyfoundation.org and evolutionaryleaders.net to stay in the loop about future activities. In closing, I wish to thank everyone that made this program possible. Together, let's keep hope alive and have unwavering faith in our ability to create new realities for the benefit of the whole. Thank you, everyone. Very great, Diane. Thanks so much. Now, uh, on to uh, Bob Atkinson. Thank you, Kurt. Yeah, I'd like to, uh, similar to Diane, thank everyone who has been involved in this uh, wonderful series. Uh, We've had some remarkable guests that we just heard from, and I'll just take another few seconds to mention another project that was mentioned earlier that I'm part of, and that is the uh, One Planet Peace Forum. That is going to be a virtual gathering September 25th to the 27th on the theme, Building a Future We Envision. And that includes a number of key thought leaders as speakers, including Audrey Kitagawa of the Parliament of the World's Religions, Reverend Victor Kazanjian of United Religions Initiative. Kurt, our host here, will be part of that as well. And a number of other amazing presenters like uh, Dot Maver and Philip Helmick and so many others. So we're hoping that everyone can find their way to One Planet Peace Forum, September 25th to 27th. And you can register online for that at One Planet. OnePlanetPeaceForum.org. Thank you. All right, Bob. Thanks so much. And again, a lot of kudos to everybody who had to move in-person events over to being virtual events once we uh, were struck by the pandemic. So, Deborah, over to you. Thank you, Kurt. Aren't these evolutionary leaders an amazing group of thinkers and visionaries? It is such a privilege to be the director of this group of luminous beings. And you can see that what we're talking about on this program is much more than a book. As Bob said, it's about nothing less than global transformation. These are urgent times, truly our moment of choice. I hope that you have been inspired by all that you've heard and that you'll be ready to jump into the many upcoming events leading up to the UN International Day of Peace on September 21st. That day is particularly close to my heart. Uh, I met Diane Williams at the United Nations and Kurt Johnson as well, I believe. And um, I worked there with the UN on the International Day of Peace for more than 20 years. This is uh, the first 
ever truly global holiday, and I hope that you will be part of that, especially over the course of Peace Weekend coming up. I would like to close with a few lines from the preface to our moment of choice that Diane and I wrote together. You are reading this book because you are part of this evolutionary community leading the conscious evolutionary movement for global transformation. You are an integral part of the collective field of love and healing that will generate a heart-centered future based on co-creation, caring, compassion, appreciation, and cooperation. So please go visit our momentofchoice.com. Take a look at the book. Enjoy all our wonderful evolutionary leaders and what they've written here in our moment of choice. And we look forward to meeting up with you again on the second part of this Voice America series. Great, Deborah. Thanks so much. And uh, thank you for being the noble director of this amazing group of thought leaders and change makers. So, Rick, um, say a few words. Yes. Well, it's all about we, isn't it? This wonderful and diverse group makes it clear that our collective well-being depends on the well-being of each and every member of our society. This is the essence of a we-based culture. We can no longer afford to live in a me-based society where people's actions are not considerate of the consequences for others, including animals, ecosystems, and all of nature. So I just want to thank you and all the authors and everyone so much for helping us to move closer to having a world that works for all. Thank you. All right. Thanks to everyone, and thanks to everybody who's been on this program. So everyone remember that you can find out so much more by going to the website for the book, ourmomentofchoice.com, and that the book officially launches on September 1st. Thanks again to everyone for joining us on this special program on the Evolutionary Leader's new book, Our Moment of Choice, Evolutionary Visions and Hope for the Future. So find out more about the book and join us again in mid-September for our Moment of Choice 2, where we'll have a lot more new information for you about the events and initiatives that are ongoing reflecting the transformative vision that's in our Moment of Choice, and they'll be rolling out across the fall and winter. All these events will be online, and nearly all of them are free. So a great source for you to learn more about those events in the meantime and to track their schedules is to simply check at www.unity.earth. That's www.unity.earth, where nearly all of these programs will be tracked. So thanks again, and we'll see you again in September for our moment of choice, too, here on The Convergence on Voice America. Search my way through wreckage Try to find a peace to save Was it a hurricane? Was it rain? Was it a warm tsunami wave? We think we're thick with courage That's an insult to the brave 
house are mortgaged And our minds are media slaves The world is warming up as we earn Mother Nature's wage Just inside She is taking to the streets To release her secret rage Just inside Just in time.